Revelation 10. As we begin, I remind you of Revelation 1, 3, where it says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Blessing is typically not the word people use for the book of Revelation. Many might say fascinating, as one would be fascinated by reading next year's newspapers. Or others might say frustrating, because this book holds many strange characters and catastrophes. But our hope, instead of fascination or frustration, has been blessing. Obviously, there are parts of this book that are exciting, given that we are told things that will take place. And there are challenges as we read about creatures that we've never seen before. But if we read this book, God says there's a blessing. And the truths in this book are plain enough that we can take hold of them and we can apply them. Now, I must say, at times, you may be stuck in the story. And at times, I've been stuck in the story wondering, what is this? What's happening here? But what I found is that thinking about the context and rereading the book answers most of my questions. And it helps me weed out certain interpretations of the book as well. But I encourage you, I challenge you, read this book again and again. It is the surest way to secure its blessing and avoid the pitfalls of theological system overreach. And as you read this book, make sure to look for Christ, because this book, above all, puts Christ on display. Who is it that John sees in Revelation 1? Who is it who speaks in Revelation 2 and 3? Who is it who takes the scroll from the Father? Who initiates conflict with the world to reclaim the earth? And who will accomplish the victory of God? Jesus Christ. That's what Revelation shows us. Let's pray. Father, as we consider the latter part of Revelation 10 today, we ask that you will help us in our study of this book. We want to know what it means. We want to know what it means for our lives. So, Father, we pray that you will help us to this end. Without the work of the Spirit to illumine our hearts, we realize that we will not understand. So, Father... I pray that each one today would humble himself so that he can receive the food of your word and by it be blessed. Father, we pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen. The story is told of a stray dog who was trying to find a home. He spent his nights in the alley where the trash cans were kept, and in the day he ventured out. When he did, people would shoo him away. He went from house to house trying to find someone who would give him something to eat. House after house, day after day, he canvassed the town until he came to a little white house at the end of a gravel road. There lived a man who walked with a cane and was sitting on his porch. At first, the man brandished his cane at the dog, who recoiled in fear. Yet, because of his great hunger, the dog didn't run away. 
He bowed himself and whimpered softly, looking up at the man with wanting eyes. That's when the man put his cane down and reached for his breakfast plate. Our study of the book of Revelation has brought us to the end of chapter 10. And thus far we've seen that Christ has initiated conflict with the earth. And for a time, he sat at his father's right hand, but at the appointed time, he stood and took the scroll from the father. And he began to execute its judgments. And in sequence, the seal and the trumpet judgments have devastated the earth and those who dwell upon it. And according to today's population numbers, the judgments that we've already studied have ended the lives of over 4 billion people. This book has given us the reactions of those who dwell on the earth. We saw the reactions at the end of chapter 6 and the end of chapter 9. First, we saw that they recognized that what they were experiencing was the wrath of God and of the Lamb. For all judgment has been given to the Son, so that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. In chapter 9, we saw that those on earth refused to repent. They were bound by the cords of sin. And as we saw last week, the next move in the drama of Revelation was a bold one. When those on earth refuse to turn to Christ, he doesn't throw up his hands and give up. Instead, a mighty angel takes his stand on the land and sea, thus staking claim to the earth for Christ. And he declared that there would be no more time for delay. Christ's kingdom is coming to earth in the time of the seventh and very next trumpet judgment. What will the drama of consummation of all things be? God will need to reveal it if we are going to know it. And at this point, the Apostle John is called upon specifically. Earlier in this chapter, John had heard what the seven thunders said, and John was about to write it down. However, a voice from heaven stopped him. John wasn't supposed to prophesy what they said. And just in case we miss it, the Apostle John prophesied by writing. This was the task that Christ called him to on the island of Patmos in the mid-90s. And at this point in the vision of the drama of Christ initiating conflict with the earth, John is recommissioned to write about the consummation of all things that Christ is going to accomplish. Here at the beginning, two points should be addressed. First, this. John's recommission involved the little scroll which the mighty angel held in his hand. That's what you see in the picture. Not much is said in the text about the scroll, except that it was open, meaning that its contents were available. What they were is a matter of speculation. Some say it's the same scroll that only Christ could take and open. Others say it's the whole Bible. Others say it's Revelation 11, 1 through 13. And others say it's the rest of the book of Revelation. Who knows when the text doesn't say. Well, second, John's commission is reminiscent of the commissions of the Old Testament prophets. Perhaps you recall when Moses was commissioned at the burning bush, or Elisha, or Isaiah, or Jeremiah. But the commission that is most parallel to John's 
and most detailed is Ezekiel, in Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 3, because he too was called upon to eat a scroll that was given to him, and its effects were similar to the effects of this scroll that John eats. They're bittersweet. Not everything in these accounts is parallel, but there are some general conclusions that we can draw about what God reveals. First, the prophet receives revelation. Second, its content is bittersweet. And third, it must be proclaimed. And it's along these lines that we'll have three points this morning in the message. So, Revelation 10, 8, and 9 show us that God chooses to reveal. John took the scroll at God's direction. That is to teach us that God directs prophets to act. Look at verse 8. Then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me again. Again, meaning he has already spoken. That was up in verse 4. And perhaps this is a reference all the way back to Christ's voice mentioned in Revelation 4.1. This voice from heaven said, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So a voice from heaven commanded John to take the scroll. Now, every four years, the United States elects a president. And then that president takes the office. But in other nations around the world, it's not that way. In other nations, powerful people assume national authority by violently displacing the current ruler. They get a big enough posse together with them, and they get rid of the ruler. And they assert themselves to the highest office of the land. They take the office by force and by choice. That doesn't happen when it comes to the office of the prophet in biblical times. You see, God chose the prophets and called them specifically to their task. Like the case of Amos in Amos 7. Even so, the voice from heaven called John. And prophets obey God's directions. Prophets obey God's call to speak for him. Sometimes they don't at first. You remember the prophet Jonah who ran to Tarshish, or at least tried to go there. But it didn't work out. And eventually he obeyed God's direction. But John does. Verse 9, So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. John requested the scroll from the mighty angel. He was willing to go and take the scroll. And that shows the nature of prophetic ministry. When God calls one to be his prophet, he doesn't put that person into some kind of involuntary trance where the person is just standing there mindlessly and God is speaking his word using the person as some kind of instrument. That's not how it is. It's not like a toy that talks when you press the button. Prophets are not toys that talk when God presses the button. John chose to obey God's direction and acquire the scroll because God is determined to give a word to man, and he chose to use John for that task. Now, this is something that's unique for John, which shouldn't be something that you and I try to repeat. So as you look at what it says here, go to the angel, take the scroll, that's not what we're supposed to do. In times past, God spoke by the prophets and by his son, but we have what God has given us and revealed to us in the Bible. It's in your hands. We don't need to go to God for more revelation. 
All we need for saving faith in Christ and for growth in Christ's likeness is his word, which we have. So none of us should hope to one day meet a mighty angel and ask a scroll from him. Okay? From this scene, we see this, that God is gracious to choose to reveal things to us because his revelation is his choice. Secondly, in verses 9 and 10, what God reveals produces different effects within because this scroll was bittersweet to John. Look at verse 9. He said to me, take and eat. This is similar to the commission of the prophet Ezekiel who was told this in chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. And when I looked, behold, a hand was stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of a book was in it. So the question we might wonder is, do prophets have a steady diet of papyrus and parchment? Well, no. Eating is a scriptural metaphor for taking in and living out the Word of God. It's a principle for all believers. So all the way back to Deuteronomy 8.3, the Lord humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna for the 40 years in the wilderness, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes out of the mouth of the Lord. And you remember that Jesus Christ quoted that to the devil when he was tempted. And beyond that, the apostle Peter said, likewise, newborn infants desire the pure milk of the word. A mark of a true Christian is a desire, an appetite for God's word. And over time, a Christian should grow in his understanding of spiritual things, moving from milk to meat to solid food. And a verse from the oldest book of the Bible really sums up this whole point, where Job said this, I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. I treasure the words of God's mouth, what God says more than my necessary food. The story is told of G. Campbell Morgan, an English preacher, minister, who had a unique routine in his household. Listen up, kids, this is something to think about. Each morning, a bell would ring at 6 a.m., calling his six children to come to the table. And first, they would have a reading from Scripture, and then they would eat. And if a child didn't come down for the Scripture reading, he didn't eat breakfast. No Bible, no breakfast. It was a way to teach, I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. Now, that's the biblical metaphor that I've described to you, which is the backdrop for the passage here. But it's not the point of the text. It's just the background. John's commission wasn't simply to meditate on God's word and apply God's word. Consider what the angel said to him, verses 9 and 10. He said to me, take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it'll be sweet as honey. I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth. And when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. So this word is bitter sweet. We can learn two points from that. First, God's word is sweet when it is understood. Because the scroll was sweet in John's mouth. And God's word is bitter because of what it uncovers. The scroll was bitter in John's stomach. 
Now, what is understood and what is uncovered is debated by commentators. Some say that this bitter, sweet scroll refers to the blessings and the judgments of God's Word. Others say that this is the effect that mirrors the experience of every believer when he receives God's Word. When you read the Bible, when you understand what it says, this is exactly what happens to you. Your first exposure and the unfolding of Scripture is that it's sweet. Psalm 119, 103, and 104. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. You say, why is God's word sweet? The next line explains. Through your precepts, I get understanding. You see, when you're sitting in church, when you're reading your Bible at home, and you realize that you're understanding the point of what the Bible is saying, that is a sweet experience. Yet, when the Bible is more fully digested, and you come to realize the change that God requires of us, it's bitter. You see, when we understand what it says, we realize that we have failed in some area of our life, and the Word of God has uncovered it. So it could be a hard thing to realize that we don't measure up to what God wants. Listen to the diary of the American missionary David Brainerd. This is how he responded after meditating on Scripture. He said this about himself. No poor creature stands in need of divine grace more than I, and none abuse it more than I have done, and still do. Another occasion he said, I saw myself to be very mean and vile, and wondered at those who showed me respect. He also said, I mourned over the body of death that is in me. It grieved me exceedingly that I could not pray and praise God with my heart full of divine heavenly love. Oh, that my soul might never offer any dead cold services to God. You see, when you understand God's word and what it means for your life, it can be a bitter experience. Other people say that this bittersweet scroll is the repeated message of the whole book. They believe this book is that God is sovereign and the saints are suffering. That God is sovereign is sweet, that the saints will suffer, that's bitter. And while suffering and sovereignty are truths of the Scripture and truths that we find in this book, they don't fit the Christological focus of this book or its genre or its form. That it's an epistle. So I don't take that to be the meaning either. What we find in this book is that Christ is coming to reclaim the earth. And the bittersweet effect of eating the scroll was one that was unique for John because it was within him who is the writer of this book. It is not outside of him for the saints He was called to write about kingdom come, but that experience would include all that was going to come until the final consummation. And let me briefly show you what he was going to have to write, because it was bittersweet. Look down in chapter 11, verse 7. John's going to have to write this. And when the two witnesses had finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war 
on them and conquer them and kill them. And that kind of opposition in the last three and a half years of the tribulation isn't something unique to that time. It's been for all time, as Revelation 12 tells us. It's a flashback of history. Look at verse 4 of Revelation 12. The dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. You see, Satan tried to destroy the Christ child. Thereby, he would nullify the promises of God. And when that was unsuccessful, Satan's attack shifted to those who were recipients of the promise. Because without recipients, the promise can't be fulfilled. Look at verse 13. When the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. When that woman was protected... Satan shifts his attack again. Verse 17, Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. So in those last three and a half years, Satan is going to realize that his time draws nigh and his attack is going to grow. Chapter 13, verse 7, it says, The beast was allowed, was given, to make war on the saints and to conquer them. You see, that's a bitter message that the prophet is being commissioned to tell. But what is sweet is that no matter how much evil will conquer for a time, Christ will conquer ultimately. You turn to chapter 17, verse 14. They make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them, for He is Lord of lords and King of kings. Chapter 19, verse 11. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and the one sitting on it was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness He judges and makes war. 15. From His mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and He will rule them with a rod of iron. So John's task is bittersweet to tell the story of kingdom come. God chooses to reveal, which is a very gracious thing. And what he reveals produces different effects within the prophet. Yet finally, in verse 11, we'll see that what God reveals must be proclaimed. What God reveals must be proclaimed. Verse 11 says, And I was told, you must prophesy. John was told it is necessary for him to prophesy. At the beginning of this book, it says that there are certain things that must soon take place. And so now John is told that prophesying is necessary. And this is to teach us about the nature of God's message. God's message is persistent, verse 11 shows. Because John was to prophesy again, underline the word again. His first commission was in chapter 1, verses 11 and 19. And there we saw he was commissioned to write what he saw to the seven churches of Asia Minor. Verse 19, he was supposed to write what he saw. And that was his vision of Christ in Revelation 1. He was supposed to write the state of the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3. And he was supposed to write what must take place in the future, chapters 4 through 22. Now, after being told to seal up what the seven thunders said in verse 4, chapter 10, he's told to prophesy again. And this is really amazing in the context. Say, what's the context? Remember the end of chapter 9? How has the world responded to the judgment of God? They are unrepentant. 
And when the world is unrepentant, God chooses to commission his prophet. Do you see the long-suffering of God? Do you see his grace, his patience? It's what we find when Jesus spoke of Jerusalem in Matthew 23. Remember, Jesus said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? You see, with every proclamation of God's word, God's grace is being extended. It's calling those who dwell on the earth and those who are in the churches of Asia Minor to repent. And God is persistent. He does it again. And he's going to be persistent even in the days that are dark, the last three and a half years. God's message is persistent. and God's message is relevant because John was... to prophesy about many people. The verse says, you must prophesy again about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. So the scope of John's message is all-encompassing. And uniquely, it includes kings. Because in the upcoming chapters, kings are going to set themselves against Christ to their own demise. Because Christ is going to reclaim the earth from those who would have none of his rule. Yet as he increases the pressure on the earth, and as the drama of the book is escalating, there is a persistent call. Repent. We began this morning with a stray dog who canvassed the town, house after house, day after day, and one day found a home with an old man who lived in a white house at the end of a gravel road. And the word of God calls out persistently, even to the very end, for people to turn to him. And that shows us the loving kindness and grace of God. Kind of loving kindness and grace of God that we should thank him for. Father, we now thank you for your kindness to us. You have been kind to us to again and again tell us your will by exposing us to your word. We hear it from our fathers who teach us daily. We hear it from our church who teaches us weekly. We hear it from your word as we humble ourselves before it daily and read it. And each time you are being gracious to us and long-suffering, we often find ourselves at odds with you. Instead of getting rid of sin, We try to enjoy the short-lived seasons of sin. And you are graciously, again and again, calling out for us to repent. And so, Lord, as we look at this future reality of your long-suffering, even towards a world that refuses to repent, may we see your grace. And instead of being hardened by sin, may we repent of our sin, realizing that's how we can give you glory to instead of relishing in sin, to confess it, to confess that it is not worthy of your glory, and by doing so, that we magnify the glory that you deserve. We pray that you'll help us to live out what it means to praise you, a God who's long-suffering and gracious. We thank you for showing this to us today. In Jesus' name.
Amen.